as we um, dig into God's Word here this morning, we're going um, we're gonna to be kind of jumping around to a couple of different passages. Normally we work through, uh, we've been working through John's Gospel, but we're going to do something just a little bit different today. So let's, let's just open with prayer. Lord, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things about your law. Help us to understand what you would speak to us this morning in your word. That we might be transformed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the sign out front, and I, I didn't, it was still dark when I came up here this morning, and so I didn't look at it. Often when the wind blows, the letters all slide around. Um, But the sign out front says, or is supposed to say, that we are an ordinary church proclaiming an extraordinary God. It's not a statement that you would normally see on a church marketing campaign. Most churches, um, they want people to know how, I don't know, how radical they are or how much their music rocks, how relevant the teaching is or how the kids will have a blast, how laid back and casual they are about worship while still being awesome. Um, But a few years ago, several years ago now, I adopted this phrase, an ordinary church proclaiming an extraordinary God. And just to be clear, I stole it. Um, I'm not that creative. In fact, I stole it. His daughter is here today. I stole it from my friend Gabe. Um, But I did so because I think it's good to acknowledge that we are just ordinary It's good for me to acknowledge that I'm nothing special. That if this church is growing, and it has been, it's because Christ is building His church. It's because Jesus is working as He said He would. But there's another aspect to being ordinary. And that is that we're just regular. We're just regular. So when I was a kid... My dad, my grandfather, they had a full-service gas station I worked at in the summers and after school. And we had two gas pumps back then. One was regular. That was what people called leaded gas back in the day. Dale remembers. (laughs) Sorry, Dale. (laughs) The other was that we had was super unleaded. One day... Mrs. Corliss stopped in, and she had a 1974 Chevy Impala. And the gas filler's behind the license plate. She asked for $10 worth of regular unleaded. And there is no regular unleaded. There's only regular, which nobody wants anymore, except for maybe some of the old-timers, or super unleaded. And it has the word super in it, so it must be great. Well, now I... I can't remember the last time I put anything other than regular unleaded in any of my vehicles. There's nothing wrong with regular. Modern Christianity wants anything but ordinary, anything but regular. We want awesome. We want radical. We want worship that's off the hook or whatever that means. We want God to speak directly to us. We want to see God face to face and live to tell about it. We want our Christian lives to be super when God is at work in the regular, in the ordinary. 
Historically speaking, the church has seen God work through what has come to be known as the ordinary means of grace. So as we worked our way through the gospel according to John, we have seen God work. He's worked in miraculous ways. He has worked in unique ways that we don't see anymore. And yet behind the signs and wonders, we see a God nurturing His disciples in the same way that He still nurtures us through His teaching, through the Word of God, through prayer. And as we keep moving forward, as He establishes, He will continue to nurture His disciples as He establishes the ordinances, communion and baptism. And so over the next couple of weeks, as we lead up to the holiday season, at least up to towards Thanksgiving, We're going to take a break from our study of the gospel according to John and and look at these ordinary means of grace. We looked at these a few years ago, but my prayer is that it will be a good refresher and reminder for us. Now, different churches, different denominations will define this differently. So let me me tell you what I mean when I'm talking about the, the ordinary means of grace. So it is just simply this. These are the the common, regular, ordinary ways in which God nurtures our faith. Because of this, there are certain things that that need to be our foundational activities. And and yet they're often actually overlooked. Um, We tend to encounter them on a regular basis. and, And as a result, these ordinary means of grace can begin to feel ordinary or even boring. But these are the ways in which Christ builds His church. It's through the preaching of His Word, through communion and baptism, and and through prayer. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to take a closer look at each of these ways in which God builds up our faith. And we're going to start this morning with the Word. The Word of God. So Acts chapter 11, verse 1 says this, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. And, and received it they had. Salvation had come to the Gentiles. Salvation had come to the nations. And as Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, Faith came to them through hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. We recently saw in John chapter 12, verses 20 and 21, we read this. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. It's no wonder then that Paul tells the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, He tells them that it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who would believe. It pleased God. The mission was simple. Him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. See, we believe that the Word of God saves. We could say it this way. We believe that the Word of God is the Spirit of God's instrument to bring salvation to those who will become the people of God. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring people to Himself. 
The Word of God saves. This isn't new to us. One of the documents that was written in the, in the wake of the Reformation, today is Reformation Sunday, one of the documents that was written in the wake of the Reformation, it's known as the Baptist Catechism. Sometimes it's called Keech's Catechism. Catechism is just an old word. They used to teach children truths of the Bible in question and answer format. And number 94, question 94 in this catechism is this, how is the Word made effectual for salvation? How is the Word made effectual for salvation? And the answer is this. The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. So the Word of God is effectual for salvation. That means that it will not return to God void. He has promised that in Isaiah. And so this brings up a couple of questions for us. Um, If we're talking about nurturing or or building up our faith, we have a couple of questions. The first is this. If we believe that the proclaimed Word of God, either, either preached or read aloud, is effectual for salvation, how then is it to be heard and read? In other words, question one for us today is when we gather as the assembly of the saints, when the church gathers together, how are we to attend to God's Word? The first answer is with diligence. Turn to Proverbs chapter 8. We're going to begin here. We're going to move to a couple of different passages, but we'll begin here in Proverbs 8, 32. I'm going to read 32 to 36 <coughs> to the end of the chapter there. Proverbs 8, 32. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Now, this passage, really all of Proverbs or a lot of Proverbs, is about wisdom personified. A personification of wisdom itself. And in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 18, wisdom is called the tree of life. So in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is not just intelligence, it's not just street smarts, although those are certainly can be aspects of wisdom, but according to Proverbs, wisdom is a life lived in communion with God, in a relationship with God. So look again at verse 34. He said, blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. This is, the, this is a guard of an ancient walled city. He's at his post daily, keeping watch. And he's keeping watch not only for enemies, but also for the returning king. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 17, God tells the prophet Ezekiel, He says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. The prophet is a watchman for the people of Israel. 
The Word of God warns us against sin. And we're to be constantly listening. A good watchman doesn't just simply point out the enemy and then go back to his business, right? A good watchman will stand and fight. And so if we're talking about fighting sin, we're talking about, as John Owen calls it, the mortification of sin. It'd be killing sin because otherwise sin is killing you. We are to receive the Word of God with diligence, watching for God's warnings. We're also to receive the Word of God with diligence, listening to God's answer to our prayers. With diligence, listening to God's answer to our prayers. Have you ever thought of it this way? That maybe the, maybe the things that you pray for throughout the week, maybe they're going to be answered by God in the sermon. Maybe they're going to be answered by God as we just stand up and read another chapter of Isaiah. Or, or a call to worship. I've been working through Psalm 119. Maybe God is going to answer your prayer that you've been praying throughout the week through His Word. This is what Habakkuk did and what happened to Habakkuk. It's been a few years now, but we've, um, we've studied Habakkuk, I think in Sunday school several years ago probably now. But if you remember, if you were here, when we went through the book of Habakkuk, uh, the prophet Habakkuk cries out to God, and God answers. But his answer is so confusing to Habakkuk, so confusing to the prophet, he didn't understand, and so he cried out to God again. And then he says this in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. As he says, I don't understand what you're talking about. How can this happen? He says this, Habakkuk 2, 1, I will take my stand at my watch post and, my st- and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. I'll stand at the watch post and look out to sea. In God's Word, He is speaking to us. And so we should be watching and listening diligently, prepared to hear what He would say to us. Again, Proverbs 8.34 says, says, Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. Waiting beside my doors. Are, are you waiting... On God? Like actively waiting on God to answer? Or have you given up? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31 says this But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint because they wait. The idea here is that in gathering week after week after week to regularly, ordinarily sit under the preaching of the Word of God, we're patiently, diligently submitting ourselves to His timing, to His effectual work in our lives under His timing. Or to use New Testament language, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's how he does that. Constantly sitting under God's word. And that work, uh, the work that he began in us, that he will bring to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, that work begins and ends with salvation. 
Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. This is salvation. Listen to this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of salvation to those who believe. And the proclamation of the message of the gospel is how God chooses to save. And for it to take root, not only to justify us, but also to to sanctify us, to make us holy, and and ultimately to glorify us when we join Him in heaven and, and all of the stain of our sin has been removed. In order for that to happen, we need to be diligent, watching, waiting, listening. This is how the Word of God dwells in us richly, as Colossians 3.16 says. In fact, I wrote that down this morning so we didn't have to turn to it. Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. This verse is specifically, specifically referring to the corporate, gathered, assembled worship of the church, the assembly of the saints. Don't forget, we're talking here about God's ordinary means of grace, the the common, normal, consistent ways in which God nurtures and builds up our faith. And so how are we to attend to God's Word? First is with diligence. And then secondly is with preparation. So, so turn now to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, beginning of verse 22. I'll give you a second. I'm actually going to read down through chapter 2, verse 3. Just these few verses. 1 Peter 1, 22. It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and deceit, all and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Do you approach Sunday morning, gathering together with the assembly of the saints, do you approach worship on Sunday with your hearts prepared? That's what this passage is saying. What it is saying is that in response to our new birth, through the living and abiding Word of God, we're to put away our sin and to yearn for, to long for the pure spiritual milk of God's Word so that by it we may grow up into our salvation. Look at these things in, here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. They're set in opposition to each other. Verse 1 is set in opposition to verse 2. Verse 1, stop sinning. Verse 2, desire God's Word. Notice the sins here that, that Peter lists. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Malice. 
This is wickedness or evil, especially directed at others. Malice is typically directed at others. Deceit. Put away all malice and deceit that lies and fraud. Put away hypocrisy. Hypocrisy here, often it's, it's phony flattery. So it's saying one thing and doing another, but it's often a phony kind of building up one another and not meaning it. Envy. Do you know, what, do you know that the antonym for envy is joy? The opposite of envy is actually joy. Envy is a, is a bitterness that, that we develop toward others, often over their good fortune. Often envy begins with the words, must be nice. I have a feeling we've all probably said, must be nice, when we hear about somebody else's good fortune. It often has roots in envy. Slander. Slander is evil speaking, often accusation. All of these sins here in 1 Peter 2, 1 are directed at one another. And hiding these things in our hearts is the opposite of how we should be approaching worship. Hiding and hanging on to those things is the opposite of how we should be approaching worship. We should be approaching it having put those things away, Peter says. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your, offer your gift. The main focus of the worship service is to hear from God. The main focus of the worship service is to hear from God. Right after the Reformation, during the Reformation, one of the first things that pastors did, that churches did, was they moved the communion table from the central focus of the worship service. They lowered it, either put it down in the front or off to the side, and they put the pulpit as the central thing that you see when you walk in. Not because of the preacher, but because it was... It held the Word of God. Because the pulpit is that which we proclaim the Word of God from. And so the Word of God is central. Hearing from God is central. He speaks and we respond. We respond with prayer. We respond with offerings. We respond with songs of praise and thanksgiving. Even our fellowship with one another is a response to His Word. That's verse 22 here. 1 Peter 1.22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth from a sincere, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. We see that in the fellowship before and after the services. Loving one another. We see it outside of these walls too. But we certainly see it here. And so Jesus there in Matthew chapter 5, He tells us to leave our worship and go and then come and offer your gift. There's a preparation there. We are to worship God as a people prepared. Prepared to hear from Him. Longing to hear from Him. Look at this word picture here in verse 2. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. How do newborn infants long for milk? Think about that. 
They long eagerly. They long frequently. And if you've ever been around hungry babies before, you understand that it is an intense personal desire. Right? Sometimes more intense than others. That's what this means. Do you intensely desire to hear God's Word? Do you prepare your heart to hear from the Lord? Do you hunger and thirst after Him? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? If you do, Jesus says you will be satisfied. Now I need to say this so that we're very clear. You you do not need to be sin-free to come in and worship God. I want to be clear about that. You do not need to be sin-free to be able to come in here and worship God. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that Christ's shed blood allows us to enter the holy places. If it wasn't, if it wasn't for Christ's shed blood, none of us could worship God. None of us could approach a holy God. However, we often come to church unprepared. We come to church harboring bitterness and resentment, harboring malice and deceit. But as Paul will say, that's not the way that you learned Christ. Peter tells us at the beginning of the previous paragraph, he says to prepare our minds for action. Wayne Grudem says that that means that we need to be ready to see God work and respond to Him with instant obedience. Sometimes we don't like that idea of submission or obedience to God, but that's what we're teaching our kids. We want them to instantly obey, not just because we want to harbor power and authority over them, but because we love them and want them to do the right things. Preparing our minds for action is being ready to see God work and respond to Him with obedience. See, we are to approach the the proclamation of God's Word, whether it is preached or read aloud. We are to approach the proclamation of God's Word with a sense of, of spiritual alertness, being prepared. And we can do this because we have confessed our sins, because we are eagerly, diligently listening, watching, and, and waiting for God to speak. So, so let me give you some practical steps for how we do this. Um, these are actually, I came up with a list from Tabidi and Yabule, wrote a book called What is a Healthy Church Member? These are great suggestions. So let me just give you some just straightforward suggestions and we'll keep moving. Suggestion number one, sleep Saturday night. I know this is hard today, but sleep Saturday night. There was wisdom in the Jewish Sabbath being from sundown to sundown. Spend the evening before church just preparing. Pray together as a family. Go to bed a little bit earlier. Whatever it takes. Or how about this? Pray throughout the week for the sermon prep. Pray for the preacher as he studies. You, you need to know that before, before I ever get up to preach, and I know this is true for most preachers, or should be, before we ever get up here to preach, I've had to preach it to my own heart all week. I've had to mortify my own sin. I've had to repent and seek forgiveness. So please, pray for the preacher. 
Pray for the hearts of those who will hear the message. Pray that it will not fall on deaf ears, but that God will renew their minds as He transforms them. Pray for one another. Meditate on the passage before and after it's preached. Now, this is a little bit odd because we're kind of jumping around today, but normally, you know this, normally we preach through books of the Bible verse by verse, so you're, you'll generally know the next passage that we're going to be in. When we get back to John here in a few weeks, we're going to start in John 13, verse 18, right where we left off. So meditate on the passage. You could invest in commentaries um, and use them. I would suggest to you that there are some out there on the bookshelves over there in our library. Talk to one another about the sermon after church. Spur one another on, as Hebrews says. Listen to it again throughout the week. We have the unique ability in history to go back and listen to the sermon over again. Or ask me and I'll email you my notes. Develop a habit of addressing questions about the text of Scripture. Often I will leave things on the cutting room floor, so to speak. We won't cover everything. I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. Um, So it's up to you to research and find some of those answers. What does this mean? And then finally, and I think maybe most importantly, cultivate humility. Cultivate humility. Paul, Paul says that knowledge puffs up. So maybe the sin that you need to kill is pride. Pride that you get it, but these other people don't. You need to cultivate humility. And so we attend to the Word of God with diligence. We attend to the Word of God with prepared hearts, but then also with prayer. With prayer. In Psalm 119, verse 18, the psalmist prays this. He says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things about your law. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things about your law. Prayed that as we started here today. I think I even prayed it in Sunday school as we started earlier. This should be a constant prayer of ours. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things about your law. Charles Spurgeon, in his commentary on the Psalms, it's called The Treasury of David, he wrote this. He said, This prayer implies a, a conscious darkness, a dimness of spiritual vision a powerlessness to remove that defect and the full assurance that God can remove it. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things about your law. He goes on to say, and see if you view the word of God like this, with, with vast treasures in the word which he had not yet fully seen, marvels that he had not yet beheld, mysteries that he had scarcely believed. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things about your law. Jesus would often say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He isn't simply hoping that everyone will understand. That's not what he is saying there. He's saying that those whose eyes have been opened by God, whose ears have have been unplugged, unstopped by God, he is praying that they will hear and understand. And that's how we should attend to the preaching of God's word. We should approach the proclamation of God's Word praying that our ears would no longer be plugged to the truth. We should attend to the preaching of the Word praying that God would show us the vast treasures, that we would behold the marvels, that we would believe His mysteries. 
to approach the preaching of the Bible without prayer is to approach God's Word really as a textbook, something to give us information, maybe as a, as a self-help manual helping me feel better. Prayer, instead, when we approach the Word of God with prayer, it's our admission that we are utterly and completely dependent on God. It is saying to God, give us this day our daily bread. And so we are attend to the preaching of the Word of God with diligence, with prepared hearts, and with prayer. And if we do these things, God will nurture our faith. It's not flashy. It may not attract a big crowd. It's just ordinary. It's just something we do week after week after week. And so... This bears another question, and that is this. How are we to receive God's Word? So if the first question is, how are we to attend to the Word? That takes place really before leading up to God's Word being proclaimed. But the next question is about what happens during and after the preaching. How do we receive it? Three ways. First, with faith and love. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, which is about the, the Israelites who were not allowed into the promised land because of their sin, it says this, For the good news came to us just as it did them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. See, remember, Paul says in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So the message of the Gospel, the Word, brings faith. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I, I, I couldn't find the exact quote, but Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that there are, there are ultimately two responses to the Word of God. Either repentance and faith, which brings new life, or hard-hearted rejection, which only leads to condemnation. Those are the only responses, ultimately, to God's Word, to the Gospel. Receiving the Word of God with faith, it, it looks like this. It's, it's Hebrews 4, 7. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. The preacher of Hebrews goes on to explain there that just as God's Sabbath rest was a recognition that His work of creation was complete. Just as that seventh day was a, was a, and His rest in that seventh day was a recognition that creation was complete. It was, it was good. Christians enter into His rest when they recognize that Christ's work of redemption from sin is also complete. It is finished. And then He says this in, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. He says this, let us therefore strive to enter that same rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is... This is repentance. This is what the Word of God does. It slices right through all of our superficiality to cut us to the heart. And, and we can do this in one of two ways, or we can, 
We can look at all of this, uh, God's Word being sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the, to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. We can view this in a couple of different ways. We can view it like a surgeon's scalpel, slicing through and, and cutting out the sickness and disease of our own sin, bringing repentance. Or we can refuse to re- repent and instead kind of build up the scar tissue of a hardened heart more like a junkie's needle. We must receive God's Word. He is pleading with us to receive God's Word with repentance and faith. But there also must, must be mixed in with this love. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10 says that the that lost, the unbelievers, are, uh, the perishing, they are trapped in Satan's wicked deception because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. That's 2 Thessalonians 2.10. They refused to love the truth and so be saved. There, there's no middle ground here. Either you love the truth and are saved, or you refuse and stand condemned. And just to be clear, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, how do we receive God's Word? with faith and love. And faith and love begin with repentance. And repentance means doing anything and everything possible to run from sin and to run to Christ. And so this is the second response that we should have to God's Word. And that is, we should lay it up in our hearts. We should lay it up in our hearts. Turn now to Psalm 119 again. I want to read Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. How can a, he begins by saying, How can a young man keep his way pure? Purity comes through setting up God's Word as a, as a fence around your heart. That's where purity comes from. And we need to understand here, when we talk about purity, it's not just how you dress. And it's not just for women. Purity comes through setting up God's Word as a fence around your heart. We're called to be pure. This is where purity comes from. The psalmist gives us really four fence posts that help protect our hearts. There may be more, but I want you to see these four. Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. One of the fence posts posts for us to be pure is to store God's word in our heart, to memorize it, to make it a part of how we think. You're taking God's word Um, And you're packing it in the root cellar, so to speak. You're canning it. 
putting it in a safe place for when you will need it during the long, cold winter of your soul. Commit God's Word to memory. Make it a part of what you breathe. But then not simply memorizing it, but we must learn it too. Look at verse 12. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Help me to understand. What does this mean? There are passages in the Bible, Paul even tells us, or Peter even tells us about Paul that are hard to understand. Not just parts of Paul's writing are hard to understand. We acknowledge that. And so we ask God to teach us, to help us to understand. And then we're also to delight in God's Word. Look at verses 14 and 16. Verse 14, In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. Verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Do you find joy and happiness in God's word? Or is sitting down to read it just simply a drudge? A drudgery? It's interesting, I think, that Lazarus, who was dead but made alive because he literally heard the word of Christ and obeyed, Lazarus come out. Yet the Pharisees also heard his word. They heard a lot of his words, and they hated the things that he said. And today, Lazarus is alive, and the Pharisees are dead. And then fourthly, so we listen and obey, and then also we need to meditate on it. Verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Meditation takes work. Our eyes are prone to wander, and so we must fix them on God's Word. Meditate on it, reading it over and over, thinking about it over and over, hiding it in our hearts. These things all go together. Now, obviously, establishing these four fence posts around our heart, they won't be accomplished by simply spending five minutes on a few verses in the morning or listening to a sermon on occasion. We need to soak ourselves or marinate ourselves in God's Word. So there's a strange passage in Ezekiel chapter 3 that says this. Now, catch the imagery here. Ezekiel chapter 3, it says, And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I may give you, that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Eat this book. And it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. But as strange as that imagery might be, It's not so strange when you read in Psalm 34, verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. O taste and see that the Lord is good. We are to consume God's Word. And if we receive God's Word with faith and love, with repentance, and and we lay it up in our hearts and we meditate on it and we delight in it, then we're going to find that it's sweet as honey in our lives. We need to savor God's Word. We need to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. Colossians 3.16 And then finally, and I'll, and I'll finish with this, we are to receive God's Word. We are to respond to God's Word by practicing it in our lives. 
James chapter 1, verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer or who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. A doer who acts. And so we have to ask, what does that look like? What does it look like to be a doer who acts on God's Word? Well, it certainly looks like all that we have already talked about here this morning. But Jesus gives a little bit more clarity in Luke chapter 8, verse 15. Luke 8, 15 says, As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the Word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Hold it fast and bear fruit with patience. So, two ways to practice it in our lives. Hold it fast. Cling to it. The King James Version there, I think, actually says keep. As in, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Hold fast to my commandments. We obey Jesus not out of bitter obligation, but with an honest and good heart. Out of love for the one who saved us. For the one who gave you that new heart. And we also practice this by bearing fruit with patience, he says. This is a mark of salvation. If you love Christ, you will obey Him and your life will show signs that He is working on you. He says, as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the Word, hold fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. This is a, this is a statement of fact. Okay? The proper response to hearing the preached Word of God is to cherish it and do what it says. Now, hear me carefully. Not simply do what I say. I'm not talking about me here. Do what God's Word says. Cherish it and do what it says. We're so often looking for extraordinary ways that God will work in our lives. We read books that claim direct revelation from God that He's whispering in my ear... I must be, I feel blessed, so it must be okay. We make books, this one hits a little bit close to home, but we make books about supposed trips to heaven into bestsellers because we often don't believe that God would work in those ordinary ways. But you know what? God works in ordinary ways And God works through ordinary people. And the ordinary means that He is using to build up His church is through the Word of God, through the ordinances of baptism and communion as we proclaim His death until He comes, and through prayer, reading and preaching of His Word, the observation of the the supper and and baptism and relying on Him in prayer. These are the ways in which God will regularly, week after week after week, continue to nurture our faith and build us up in the love of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we um, have committed to being a people who um, are obedient to You, not out of a sense of um, guilt or um, judgment, but because of Your great love for us, as we are a people who are committed to um, being transformed to You, 
It is my prayer that we would um, that we would be people of your word. That we would continue steadfastly to lift high, uh, to have a high view of your scripture because it is your word. Father, we thank you for leaving us your word. We thank you for giving it to us, for giving us your commands and your promises. We thank you for showing us your faithfulness in your word. It is our prayer that we would believe and trust these things, that we would trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.